Hello listeners, this is Soren. I have a quick sad note about today's episode. Just before we recorded, we learned of the death of Hal Bush, who was a professor of English at St. Louis University, and was somebody who all three of us knew and had interacted with and really liked a lot. Hal was infectiously enthusiastic about literature. He would come to discussions with a wit and a sense of humor and an easiness about himself, but also a serious insight into what made literature work and what it made, made it worth reading. He was an expert in 19th century American literature, especially in the work of Mark Twain, and he had a sort of Twainian presence about him, a down-to-earthness and a humor, but also a penetrating insight. We also should note that he was a very generous listener and supporter of younger scholars as we were. He was never someone to look down on somebody because they were younger, but was always very supportive um, of their work and endeavors. So we just wanted to take a moment to pause and dedicate this episode to Hal's memory and to encourage you, um, if you want to know more about his life, to read his obituary. We're going to include a link to that in the show notes, just to take a moment to reflect on the life of someone who really made an impact in his students' lives and beyond that in, in the, the people around him and then the world. Thank you and enjoy this final episode on Middlemarch. Certainly those determining acts of her life were not ideally beautiful. They were the mixed result of young and noble impulse struggling amidst the conditions of imperfect social state in which great feelings will often take the aspect of error and great faith the aspect of illusion. For there is no creature whose inward being is so strong that it is not greatly determined by what lies outside it. But we insignificant people with our daily words and acts are preparing the lives of many Dorotheas, some of which may present a far sadder sacrifice than that of the Dorothea whose story we know. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're back wrapping up George Eliot's Middlemarch this week. We're talking about books seven and eight. But first, a little business. You can follow us, as always, on social media, Twitter, at The Reader's K, on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Reader's Karamazov. You can email us. The readers Karamazov 
at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you rate and review five stars, please. That helps us a lot. And just a uh, maybe a special plea here. Tell a friend if you're enjoying what you're hearing. Tell somebody else that you think would like listening along, learning about literature with us. We actually have a listener response to get to really quickly Ooh. before we dive into Middlemarch. This is a big one. This is from, from Big Papa Rearguard himself. <laughs> Wrote in uh, about last episode, we had talked about Bolstrode and the relationship between Methodism and Puritanism, which I had noted was maybe a little bit unlikely given their theological differences, especially about predestination. So my father wrote in, who is an expert somewhat on Methodism, history of Methodism, and uh, he was giving me a nice explanation here. So what he says is this, that John Wesley's mother was actually raised as a Puritan, um, and she imparted some of that to him. Wesley himself read a lot of the Puritan divines. Um, He was friends with George Whitfield and um, had a lot of respect for them, even though they diverged quite a bit theologically. And then he also made this comment, which is that what Wesley and the Calvinists shared was a deep piety, which stood in stark contrast to the latitudinarianism of people like Fairbrother in the novel. So that there was a, even if they're not aligned theologically, there's a sort of cultural conception of them as being somewhat extra compared to the, the, the sort of middle-of-the-road Anglicanism, which is we had talked about last time, but that's kind of a confirmation of that. So there's some historical ties there and also some sociological ties uh, in terms of what's going on. So thank you, thank you. Rearguard, for that. Yeah, yeah. thanks. We are, uh, as always, going to start out with a little bit of a plot summary here of books seven and eight of Middlemarch, and then we're going to kind of go where the wind blows us today. As, as we wrap up, we have thoughts about this section, but also kind of overall thoughts about the book. I'll start out with our plot summary. So in books seven and eight, we, we have the culmination of everything that's gone on to this point in our story of both Dorothea and uh, Lydgate. And to start with Lydgate, he kind of it comes to ruin in some ways, at least in Middlemarch. What ends up happening is he has asked Bulstrode for a loan. Bulstrode said no. And then Bulstrode has him come and attend on Raffles, who's this guy who's been making trouble for Bullstrode from his past. We talked about that last time. And Lydgate gives Bullstrode a very strict set of instructions for caring for Raffles, but says he'll probably recover. He's got essentially delirium tremens. He says he's going to make a recovery as long as you do these things and don't do these things. Bullstrode has charge of him. He lets his servants kind of take care of Raffles. And there's some question, it's never fully explained in the book as to whether Bullstrode intentionally or just sort of kind of unintentionally lets Raffles die through poor treatment. At which point Lydgate, who has just been given a loan by Bullstrode for providing the care, feels a little bit trapped and says, oh crap, now like people are going to assume that I was bribed. And that's in fact what happens. The people of Middlemarch see this death, rumors start spreading about the relationship between Bullstrode and Raffles, and people then, of course, associate Lydgate with that dishonor. That doesn't go so well for Lydgate, and eventually he and Rosamond leave Middlemarch in the long run, but they're at the point, by the end of the book, Rosamond and Lydgate, where money pressures have, have gotten to them, and there is a, a somewhat of a permanent break in the trust of their relationship because of those things. And so Lydgate ends up not Maybe not tragically, but sort of melancholily by the end of the book. Meanwhile, Dorothea and Will Ladislaw have recognized their love for each other. Will leaves. He then comes back. 
he gets into a somewhat compromising situation with Rosamond Vincy. Dorothea walks in on them. He's trying to comfort Rosamond. Dorothea thinks, oh, he's, he's fooling around. She gets upset and leaves. Rosamond, however, makes things right. And she says, no, no, no. She, he doesn't care anything about me. He only cares about you. Because of this, they, they reconcile and they decide, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to get married despite the social stigma surrounding this unfortunate match. They do get married. At first, everybody's mad about it. Sir James is going to cut them out of his life. He doesn't want anything to do with them. But gradually, over time, they build those bridges back with Dorothea and her sister and their their children kind of coming back together. So in the end, you have Dorothea's son who's going to inherit Mr. Brooks' land and a wrap-up of those, those things. And then finally, on the, the Fred Vincey front, Fred Vincey has really made right. He gets to take over Stone Court, which he thought he was going to inherit at the beginning of the book. He's no longer inherited it, but he's allowed to run it and farm there, basically. He and Mary Garth get married, and they're very happy together. He settles down and becomes an upstanding citizen for the most part. She's there to keep him in line a little bit, but he becomes a, a hard worker and somebody who who's, enjoys what he's doing. So that's that, that's parts seven and eight, and um, we're going to jump in and talk about the things that stuck, stuck out to us from this final section, and then also just sort of views of how the book wraps up at that grand level as well. Because this is an 800-page book. There's got to be some sort of payoff <laughs> to all of our narrative arcs here. So, uh, Where do you all want to go first? Uh, thanks for that great summary. I just want to emphasize that in the Will and Dorothea relationship, not only is it a sort of scandalous union between Dorothea and someone related to Casabon, a cousin, but it results in her disinheritance from Casabon's will. So she's made to live on 700 pounds a year. And her, her uncle, Mr. Brooke, is like, do you don't understand what it's going to be like to live on this amount of money? And she says, it's okay. Like we're, we're in this for love. It doesn't matter the money. With that in mind, I'm interested in talking about Bolstrode, if either of you are, uh, are into that. I'm always up for, for a good Bolstrode session. Well, I think you mentioned something that's really important about Bol- the Bolstrode plot, which is that it's unclear whether there's a lapse in his judgment that allows the death of Raffles, whether he deliberately gives the servant woman the wrong instructions. He knows that Lydgate has said, don't give him alcohol, give him opium, and then stop at a certain point. But then the servant woman comes knocking at his door when he's trying to sleep and is like, he needs alcohol. He need- I've treated people with DT before he needs alcohol. And finally, he's like, God, just take the key. Take the key to the alcohol cabinet, liquor cabinet, go get it. And then in the next morning, Raffles is in a terrible state and then he dies. It's not even, a, I guess, left up to question, but it's questioned by the narrator at length. Did Mr. Bolstrode do this on purpose? Was Mr. Bolstrode subconsciously hoping for the death of Raffles and Bolstrode kind of knows that he was. And it just gets at the sort of question that we've been asking throughout the first three episodes of this podcast about the novel, which is it's, it's a novel of competing wills. And there's a question for the narrator about how much these people even are aware of their own wills and their own ability to choose things and affect their futures. And here we have maybe the pivotal moment moment in the whole novel. And it's, a moment when someone doesn't know if they're actually choosing to kill someone or not. And we never find out. I wonder how you think that plays out then in my favorite part of the book, which is the Dorothea plot. Because to me, where we sort of start with her and end with her, it does seem like the will pays off, you know, in more ways than one, right? Sticking to one's will um, Mm. or finding one's will, pun intended, is a payoff for the the full novel right and Mm -hmm. so if 
we think of Bulstrode as, you know, more antagonistic or if there's a malevolent agent in Middlemarch, perhaps it's it's him, then that lesson of the novel of sticking to one's will or, you know, what one wills will out in the end, then is that what makes his fate dire? The fact that he ultimately wills these bad things. And so he's sort of trapped by the fact that subconsciously or consciously he's on this wrong path and he's pursuing it willfully. I don't know, too many puns there. but <laughs> And to make explicit to the listeners the will puns, Dorothea rejects Kazaban's will, the stipulations in his will, to choose Will Ladislaw, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And it's her will to do so. I don't know. I'm curious to hear what either of you two think about. I, I don't, I use the word lesson. I don't know if the novel's like into teaching lessons as much about individual moral action so much as like asking like, what does it mean to make a moral choice and what guides those moral choices? And it's such a vague thing. So for, so for instance, we might ask like, why would Dorothea choose Will Ladislaw? Why would Dorothea go with this person? And we can spend a lot of time as the narrator does, like getting into a person's brain and then embellishing the social context around them to ask about what choices were available, why they did this, what the consequences were. But doing that in language is really difficult. And I think the novel is aware of that and and says as much when um, Celia, Dorothea's sister, is asking her about this marriage, which is scandalous. She approaches her sister and says, can't you tell me about why you went with Will? Can't you tell me about why you're marrying this person? And uh, Dorothea responds, no, you'd have to feel with me else you would never know. It's about like this question. And someone was talking to me about this novel not, not long ago. And they said like a question Elliot seems to often be asking her novels is like, how do you translate to someone else a gut feeling? Like, how do you communicate that to someone in a novel, in anything? And I think that's still undetermined by the end of the book i think as hmm, i i agree and i still read the book that there there are some lessons in it to me i mean elliot could have ended the book in a way that leaves all characters dissatisfied i think that would have been pretty easy and i think the more artful ending and the one that we get is that dorothea through her ardor and her many wills makes good things happen for other people and it's through a like willful persistence and to me if the book gets any sort of feminist merits it's on this sense of dorothea's like work that she puts in with other people's relationships really actually pays out monetarily and for other people's happiness in ways that she was kind of always key to or she always believed in happiness in relationships or a sort of bookishness or you know solitude as opposed to inheritance or money or land and what she affects for the Lydgates is that sort of interlocutor to make their marriage get back somewhere good after we get pages and pages of mommy daddy please stop fighting like there's some really painful fights between the two of them and that ability to sort of negotiate and stick with her i believe Liggett is good and i'm not going to let the gossip overrule my gut feeling i'm going to stick with my ardor on this matter that pays out and we see that pay out like for that marriage and we sort of 
in the middle of the book in the beginning get a lot of bad marriages and examples of how marriage really stinks goes poorly isn't worthwhile but then at the end it seems like we get three happy marriages in some way so i don't know to me the, there are some subtle lessons but i do i do agree that the narrator is always pushing us away from them and nuancing them and saying as you do that this can't be perfectly translated there's something sort of intangible in whatever this lesson might be i think carl is right that there's something important about dorothea's ability to perceive things in other people too but i think what i what i mean is that she affects something important in Lydgate's life and in Rosamond's life, but she can't affect like the greater social perception of them. Like she can't fight so hard against the gossip with her feeling about Lydgate. It can only affect Lydgate's personal life and that's enriching and it helps her, but it's about their relationship and it's about living with yourself morally. We've talked about like living with yourself in a room or something like that. Right. Uh, the last few episodes and Something that the novel does in the beautiful ending that Soren read before the episode began in its invocation of St. Teresa once more and in its invocation of Antigone is it's showing that the medium in which we exist isn't allowing for this great romantic change of a society, but that we are able to change things for one another. And for Elliot, that's something she really cherishes, right? That it's really important that you're able to make life livable for the people around you and whether the greater context recognizes that about them, about you, whatever. Yeah. There's a lesson there, right? That the things you do, however small and insignificant have meaning. Yeah. And to me, that's like one of the real takeaways from this novel and sort of where it is in, in the history of the novel. Um, we move from a sense that moral choice must have the correct moral outcome in the world, in the public, in the chronicle of the day, to I think one of the main takeaways, like you just said, Friedrich, is you know, we start with like Dorothy as a person without an institution in which her work will have a lasting effect on a society. Nevertheless, Elliot is championing the hidden lives of the people who make other people's lives better, even mm -hmm. though that goodness never becomes institutionalized as a practice or something and that's what makes it feel really modern is i think a lot of people can relate to the fact that you know there's a sense that institutions are broken and sometimes they're kind of impossible to fix and the best people they're not necessarily those gunning for the most votes in an election so that they can make some sort of piecemeal reform Rather, it's the people sort of on the outside of that institution just going directly to those people and trying to help them and not caring if that gets them a lot of votes or a lot of likes. But for the people they can help in their personal social circle, they're doing all they can. I think that resonates a lot with uh, you know, a modern audience or big institutional projects. You know, There's a lot of people who find fault with them or those that would seek to only work within them to mend them. I'm wondering if that then changes something about our understanding of the sense of history in this novel that we've come back to several times. Because you're right, Friedrich, that we begin and we end with St. Teresa and her big institutional reforms. But the way that I'm sort of reading this, 
and based off of Carl's a very helpful and illuminating comments here, is that it doesn't seem like Elliot really believes that sort of change is possible for people to enact anymore. And this is despite right. maybe this is cutting against somewhat, right, the reform bills that are being passed in England, but that's mm-hmm. maybe a much more, that's not something that an individual could really bring about. It's something of a mass movement. And so where's the place for the individual in the midst of maybe a society that, that seems like it's becoming more oriented around mass politics and then, of course, eventually mass media to an extent, even then with newspapers, and then increasingly so, obviously. Is there a sense of some sort of historical loss then that's going on? And how does that tie in to Eliot's sense of where we fit into the historical past? You know, we've talked about the detritus of history hanging around us on the, the physically in Rome, and but also in, in places even in England. Are we part of that? So sort of like the flaked off skin of history? Or is there like, you know, some possibility for us in the midst of that? My flaked off skin is hidden away somewhere. <laughs> a hidden life. Uh, yes. In unvisited combs. <laughs> <laughs> no overvisited combs, but yeah. I think that, you know, there's something against, there's something to what you're saying as we throw this against the background, too, of the reform bills that it keeps invoking, the first reform bill that's being fought over, discarded, re- retaken up, etc. Then the second reform bill, and then this is written before the third reform bill. It's written before the women's suffrage, obviously, in the 20th century. But you know, people talk about England as not a country of a revolution, right? The 19th century is the age of revolution, the 18th, late 18th century. England doesn't have that. England is the slow noble reforming slow-moving parliamentarian government right and you know there's a sense of history that you could pair along with that i guess that soren's bringing us to which is it's not very romantic it doesn't really rest with heroes and the heroic in history at all but it's maybe there's a way of thinking about elliot as someone who wants to like in a way that we've talked about in episodes past with joyce to like combat the idea of history or to think about people's lives as occurring with history as a backdrop, of course, but like there's like an idea that history is romantic, but there's also an idea when we, by the time we get to Joyce, that history is this kind of hellish anchor that's pulling you down and, and you can't escape it. And so maybe this is some sort of transition point novelistically, uh, or maybe it's something else. I think to kind of maybe merge both points in some way as i was saying before it just gets to this point of the predicament we're in now and you see it all over the place with the the traditional and the modern what does it mean to be thrust into the modern outside of saint Teresa's clear sense of what an institution does in sacred time throughout all time in a cyclical kind of sacred time then it's much more beneficial to reform an institution because that institution is a sort of bedrock for how history is anchored and how it weighs but to use another metaphor for history right the benjaminian angel of history just flapping its wings going backwards like friedrich was saying into this nightmare this chaos of secular time just moving forward linearly then one is out on one's own and one would rather be a Dorothea who has a sort of pre-existential sense of how to define meaning outside of the institution better than you're almost more at home outside of the institution because then the 
modern predicament is more obvious to you. It's much more sort of quixotic or something to be a Mr. Brook who is very informed or, you know, he's very at the center of the vote and what will happen. But he seems a bit foolish to us because, well, he's not quite modern enough or something. I think this is that hinge between clearly classical and a clearly modernist time in literature. Can we go back for a minute to something that you said earlier, Carl? And I want to, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you necessarily, but I want to maybe tease out a little bit. You make the claim that at the end of the book, we have three essentially happy marriages. We're talking about Dorothy and Will, um, Fred and Mary, and then I guess you're talking about Lydgate and Rosamond. I'm not sure that I agree necessarily. Yeah, maybe that not happy, Lydgate but happier. They've reached a, some sort of detente with each other by yes, the end of this we novel. Go, there we go. Basically through Dorothea giving them the money to pay back Bulstrode's loan, get them out on their own. Then they are able to escape Middlemarch, go to London. He can work as a as a basically he re- resigns himself to being just a doctor instead of a doctor and a researcher, and then is able to make money. And then she's happy, and so they're okay until he dies. But seems happy to me. <laughs> I want to pick up on this thread. You know, you said we we've been giving given a lot of examples through the book of kind of bad marriages and it struck me that one of the things and maybe this is like marriage counseling 101 (laughs) here that that Elliot's doing for us but it is an interesting thread through the book that comes up again and again which is that the inability to talk and be truthful with your spouse with, with the other person in this relationship is what messes it up because there's a whole world of fantasy that envelops you when you cannot do that. And you see that obviously with Dorothea and Casabon. His constant problem is like he can't make himself say the things that he should say to her about his insecurities, basically. Um, and that feeds the, their mistrust with each other. The same thing with Rosamond and Lydgate. We're told repeatedly Lydgate's like about to tell her about be truthful with her about how bad things are with their money or whatever. And he just doesn't do it. And so that feeds into that fantasy life that she's living till it's really too late. As a sort of side note here, it's easy to read the book and either be like annoyed at Rosamond or then maybe turn it around and say, well, like Elliot's really being unfair to her. But then if you actually are reading between the lines, it's pretty clear like Lydgate's responsibility in this marriage almost falling apart is pretty big because he's repeatedly unwilling to just bite the bullet and say the unpleasant thing in the moment that just like makes things worse and worse and worse. And there's this wonderful moment of contrast, you know, certainly by the end, I think we've got Dorothy and Will who seem very open and with each other in terms of communication, the same thing with Mary and Fred, because Mary's never been afraid to just speak her mind to, to, to Fred in particular. But we get this wonderful moment when things have gone just about as bad as they can for Bulstrode, and he does, in fact, end up leaving Middlemarch, basically in shame. But we have this wonderful moment of reconciliation between him and his wife, Mm -hmm. where he's finally able to basically just tell her everything, confess, I made my money illegitimately, right? I've been kind of hiding this secret for 20 years. And it's this wonderful, tender moment where she is able to fully forgive because he has been able to fully confess. And... It strikes me that that's a sort of model that Elliot's giving us that's maybe in standing in contrast to the way that not only within marriages themselves, this fantasy is fed by secrecy, but the role that maybe gossip is playing in this novel, 
because gossip is driving a lot of the action of the second half of the book. And I think what happens is that the gossip is deployed as an element of fantasy that then has very real consequences in real life. Um, there's a wonderful part. I'll take us there. This is chapter... Oh, geez, i got to do math here in Roman numerals. Uh, this is chapter uh, 74, and this is right after things have started getting out. And this is what she says. In Middlemarch, a wife could not long remain ignorant that the town held a bad opinion of her husband. No feminine intimate might carry her friendship so far as to make a plain statement to the wife of the unpleasant fact known or believed about her husband. But when a woman with her thoughts much at leisure got them suddenly employed on something grievously disadvantageous to her neighbors, various moral impulses were called into play, which tended to stimulate utterance. Candor was one. To be candid in Middlemarch phraseology meant to use an early opportunity of letting your friends know that you did not take a cheerful view of their capacity, their conduct, or their position, and a robust candor never waited to be asked for its opinion. Then again, there was the love of truth, a wide phrase, but meaning in this relation, a lively objection to seeing a wife look happier than her husband's character warranted, or manifest too much satisfaction in her lot. Which is a rather cynical you know, view on Eliot's part of, of the way this is working, but essentially that gossip is taking those virtues of candor, of the love of truth, and then turning them around and, and turning them themselves into a, a fantasy element. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's a secrecy. You're not willing to actually come out and say, "Hey, Mrs. Bolstrode, did you know that everybody thinks your husband's a scumbag?" But there's a willingness to take that knowledge and then develop it secretly through like glances and knowing looks and sly turns of phrase that is supposedly a sense of candor, but is in fact another way of disguising. There's a sense in which Eliot's really showing us the acidic effects of sort of secrecy in conversation versus true candor, which is the ability to come out and help people realize where they actually stand, which is what Dorothea is willing to do with Lydgate. Fairbrother is saying, oh, we shouldn't go talk to him. He's just going to get mad at us. She's the one who takes the initiative and says, look, everybody is talking bad about you, but I don't believe them. I don't think that's what's really going on. Just to, to kind of start prodding at that point, which I think is really good and rich one and a good reading of this is to think about who's able to be candid and what what's happening here I, I mean Carl alluded earlier to like what makes this if there is anything that makes it a feminist novel I think every everything Elliot's doing is done with a lot of self-awareness and one of the things she does is allow the bolstrode news to spread through gossip but then disbars the women from knowing what is going on with their husbands, Bolstrode and Lydgate, until this male character, uh, Mr. Vincy, Rosamond's father and Mrs. Bolstrode's brother, is able to disclose it to them. So they have this weird scenes, uh, chapters, where each of these female characters is moving through their social network in Middlemarch and knowing that something is going on because no one's being candid with them, as Soren has rightfully pointed out, and yet sensing in those people that there's some sort of delicious secret and and then kind of worrying themselves over what it might be. Did my husband just like have a misunderstanding with someone? And in fact, it's much worse than that. And eventually Mr. Vincy, to each of them separately, discloses Bolstrode's past and then Lydgate's dirty dealings with him, which Lydgate didn't realize were very dirty at all. And that's an interesting, I mean, for a starting point for this discussion at least, 
is interesting to me because it's showing this sort of female network of communication that nevertheless needs male authorization in order to make it true in some way. I mean, I think Soren's right that the novel values true candor. The point about candor is interesting, and I think it holds in many of the instances that come up in the novel. There are points, though, again, back to the Lidgits and their marriage trying to work itself out, where it seems like the problem is candor in a certain way as well, with how Lidget responds when he gets upset. He's so apoplectic that he, like, shouts, and it's that sort of... I don't know if that is candor anymore, but it's certainly um, candid in some way. I think, yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting situation. You're right, Carl, that there's like that. It's almost like there's a lack of candor, a lack of candor, a lack of candor. And then all of a sudden it's like explosion. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Like because there's not a there's not a healthy release of that over time. It's like a bottling effect. That then, that then and she goes just everywhere. shuts down when she and she's like, well, if you're going to talk to me like that, we can't even figure out what our issue is and how to solve it and it takes maybe that's where again Dorothea is the person who can balance for them what needs to happen and can show each what the other has to offer them in a new way again yeah I think that's a good point Carl I think that for Lydgate it's maybe a different source of a lack of candor than with somebody like Bolstrud, who's in sort of survival mode, right? Because things are going to fall down around him. But with Lydgate, it is it is very much a sort of pride and a sort of a feeling of being correct, but then also needing to feel like I can do this by myself. I can handle this by myself. I can take care of this situation. And I don't need to show my wife what's going on. That then ends up with him exploding when she does something that he doesn't want her to do, but he hasn't told her, like, don't do this for this reason. He just sort of says, let me take care of this. Let me take care of this. And so you're right. There's a sense that Dorothea is able to come into that, the midst of that marriage and sort of restore a sort of equilibrium to them in the way that they deal with each other. Shallow nature's dream of an easy sway over the emotions of others, trusting implicitly in their own petty magic to turn the deepest streams, and confident by petty gestures and remarks of making the thing that is not as though it were. Even Tertius, that most perverse of men, was always subdued in the long run. Events had been obstinate, but still Rosamond would have said now, as she did before her marriage, that she never gave up what she had set her mind on. I don't know. To me, that got to a little bit of what Soren's point was there. And back to Friedrich's point about, you know, not knowing exactly what those feelings were and how they felt that caused Dorothea to marry Will and to be happy about it. Those are the same unknowable feelings at the root of this unbridgeable, unpacifiable tension between the Lydgates here and shallow nature's dream of an easy sway of them. So we ought not to be shallow about that. So that's an interesting thought, Carl. What you're saying is that the problem the Lydgates have is that they are unable to feel as the other one feels. There's like a disconnect there in the way that they are feeling the situation, that that gut instinct, in the same way that Dorothea feels like she can't explain 
to her sister why she has to marry Will. And there's that, so there's that disconnect. And then maybe they don't ever achieve that sense of actually feeling together, but there's something that reconnects them to some degree by the end of the book. For you, Soren, does this same dynamic play out in the third marriage that I call happy or happy-ish? It's interesting because that marriage starts out with basically Fred having fallen flat on his face. And Mary kind of recognizes that, but also recognizes, I want to marry you. I don't want to marry anybody else, fair brother, even though he is much better than you, like objectively speaking. So there's a sort of candor in the way that she deals with him. I think that's Mm -hmm. absolutely right. Yes, you're a bit of a klutz and an idiot, but you're still the person that I want to be married to. And he's able to eventually recognize that. And that's sort of where the turning point comes, where he... He kind of sets aside that pride of needing to feel like he needs to do something worthy of her and is able to just sort of accept what he's going to do in life as something that's going to make him happy and is you know not going to make him very much money, but it's going to help him provide and everything. So I think that there's that sense of maybe easy trust that develops between the two of them. And it's in maybe in a different register, right? If like Dorothy and Will are sort of like our great love story, Fred and Mary, it's more like the two people who are just really good friends and get married and have a very easy relationship over time, even if it's not like burning down the house romance. It's interesting, too, I guess, since I pointed out these three marriages, that there's also like a something relinquished in each one. No one sort of gets the have it all moment. But Fred and Mary are pretty, I don't know. In the finale, Fred and Mary are are said that they made no such failure. They achieved a solid mutual happiness. I think that they, mm-hmm. there's something about how this novel that begins with St. Teresa, right? And that begins properly with Miss Brooke, book one, Miss Brooke. ends. I mean, we say it ends with this little meditation on Dorothea. That's true, but that's in the finale. And the, the present novelistic narration ends with the Garths, right? Right before the finale that we've wrapped up this Will and Dorothea story and then we just go back to the Garths again, and they sort of are in this domestic setting talking about their relationship. And that's where we end. I mean, I would say this is a modern moment uh, if we're talking about, I know Carl likes to ask if it's modern, with them discussing their relationship. And then Fred starts describing to her, when we were first engaged with the umbrella ring, Mary, you used to, and then we just get a big dash and someone interrupts, Fred and Mary, are you coming in? May I eat your cake? And then that's the end. Really, that's the end of the present of the novel, Right. It's interrupted, we're in the middle of it, and we're with these characters who we wouldn't think of as central. But they're the characters who provide the model, if we're talking about models, of, of happiness in some way, right? They're, I mean, they're the models in the sense that they've achieved, this is Mr. and Mrs. Garth we're talking about here, they've achieved, they've achieved a level of trust that's maybe even just un, gotten looped back around to unspoken. It's like, they don't need, I mean, they do consult each other, but they know, they sort of know each other's minds before they even do it. They know... Garth yeah. knows I can do this my wife's gonna be okay with it and she trusts him she says okay I trust that what you're doing is gonna be okay in some way and we'll you know we'll make it work so there's like an almost a a candor that is unspoken in that relationship um that is sort of like this the dream state <laughs> did either of you make anything of the beginning of the finale sticks with the Garths the new Garths or I guess that we should say the Fincy's Fred Vincy and Mary Garth 
and each of them becomes an author. But we've had Kazavan, the author, uh, who never actually finishes anything but has grand schemes. We have Lydgate, the grand medical innovator who never actually innovates. And then we have Fred and Mary, and they each author a text. Fred writes Cultivation of Green Crops and the Economy of Cattle Feeding. Uh, which everyone, which everyone thinks that he couldn't have written because he's a college boy, and uh, what, what would he ever have to say about turnips? And then Mary writes stories of great men taken from Plutarch, which everyone thinks must have been written by Fred because Mary didn't go to college. What would she know about Plutarch? And then the narrator's just like Middlemarch, like convinced itself it had never been deceived because there was no need to praise anybody for writing a book since it was always done by somebody else. But each of them has. <laughs> authored this sort of extremely not romantic and subliterary almost text that's well received and people like it and they don't really care that no one knows who really wrote it is there anything just sort of cheeky about that or can we extrapolate some uh, some significance i'll leave it to soren and the <laughs> his um deep dives into the absolute <laughs> pure meaning of what small literary illusions are in texts <laughs> You know, I do think it's okay. I'm going to riff on this just a little bit. <laughs> He's um, been waiting all. I'm waiting for it. Thank you, thank you, Friedrich, for up. opening this door. Um, you know, I do think it's interesting that there, there's something very Garthian about that. We've talked, you know, in episode two, we talked about Caleb Garth. In that, Fred's write, writes this book. He doesn't end up getting credit for it in the town, but it's doing some good. It's like an interesting book that's yeah. worth writing. And in the same way, you know. There's nothing glamorous about the book that Mary writes. It's a it's like a kid's storybook, basically, an educational kid's storybook about the lives of great men. And and but it is also serving its own purpose, right? And it's it sells well in Middlemarch. People seem to like it. And then there's that other interesting twist of these being essentially again hidden authorial lives. You get this mutual hiddenness. By the great pseudonymous writer. George by the great pseudonymous writer by the great pseudonymous writer George Eliot, absolutely that neither one is given the credit for the authorship that he or she deserves because nobody ever writes books at all, right? Um, <laughs> it's just the, the opinion of the town. And so there's something wonderful there about that being something that will outlive their own lives, these, these are these authorial productions, that then they're not going to necessarily be receiving credit for. And, and there's that yeah. added irony there of Mary writing about the lives of great men. I was thinking that too. <laughs> uh, which is very counter to the spirit, of course, of Middlemarch. But then maybe even one more twist of it, which is that these are stories that we tell children, right? Yes, exactly. From yeah. Plutarch, from history. These are these are great men and we can emulate them or be like them. Because this is, you know, generally speaking, the tenor of stories you would tell to children out of Plutarch would be like, here's some great men, imitate them or don't imitate them in their excesses or, you know, yeah. one way or the other. And the vision that Elliot gives us, of course, in her book is very different, which is that we have these hidden lives. These aren't great men and women. These are just people who exist, but they're making some difference in the world. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting placement there, certainly, at the beginning of the finale. Yeah, and it's interesting, as you said, that it's a little book for her boys. It's just for entertainment. And if you take this as great men as, like, the backbone of history, it's almost like... <laughs> She's saying that's a story for children. Um, yeah. Here's a real story yeah. for you. And it's also, inter <laughs> it's also interesting that Fred's book, if we're going to just play with these a little bit, is about cultivation and economy, right? Which are two concerns of this novel is cultivating oneself and what that means. And 
functioning in an economy in which you are then entangled in people's lives. Because Lydgate doesn't even realize what he's getting into when he accepts that money from Bolstrode. He just says, thank God I'm finally getting this thousand pounds and I can uh, afford to live with Madame Bovary looking ahead. I thought you were looking ahead when you're talking about cultivating. I was like, <laughs> if we're talking about being candid and cultivating, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> wait till next time when we're going to be candid. We are going to. Yeah. <laughs> Those are just keywords that have come up again in like economy, right? That we're, we're entangled in each other's business. We're entangled in each other's lives, whether we, we like it or not. And we're cultivating one another. We're being cultivated. And that's sort of an unromantic farmer-like thing to be doing. It's not a grand romantic passionate adventure it's it's low and being low is not bad any other books that were mentioned in this last page or the thousand epigrams that were in this book well there's a reference to faust pascal's in here chapter 75 soren i'm i'm opening another door how about this there's a there's an epigraph from faust and around that epigraph there's a moment in which Rosman and Lydgate and at Will are all entangled in this uh, problem of their relationship and the misunderstanding of what was going on between Will and, L- and Rosman, not Will and Lydgate. And Lydgate is looking ahead to his future in a strange pa- magic panorama where, quote, he himself was sliding into that pleasureless yielding to the small solicitations of circumstance, which is a commoner history of perdition than any single momentous bargain if we're rewriting romanticism and Faust, we're also looking at Eliot is interested in how people just sort of go along, right, and slide into their evil dealings or or they're just like failings. And you know, I remember someone saying to me, this is such a old man advice thing, saying you have to make choices for your life because as you get older, life begins to make choices for you. And that seems to be what Eliot is saying here, right? Like the people start letting those choices be made for them and they slide into perdition and that's the real story not the Mm. mephistophelian bargain i liked the dr dunn one chapter what is it 83 and now good morrow to our waking souls which watch not one another out of fear for love all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere and there's the sort of beauty in the trap of that, perhaps, that is Middlemarch for these characters. And that's a, fasc- that's a fascinating riff on our Pascalian room where we are alone, right? That, that tiny room is suddenly an, an, ev- an everywhere. Well, let's, let's start to wrap things up. I have, a, I have a, a weird game. What filmmaker or cinematic equivalent would you bring into this discussion to describe this novel? Modern, of course. Because as I was reading it, I was thinking, did we talk about Robert Altman at all? There's an Altman quality to this, right? Quiet and moving from scene to scene, character to character in a large cast without being driven by a major arc. And then realizing maybe as the Bolstrode stuff comes out that indeed there is an arc, which is then I think also reflected in the great wannabe Altman. And I mean that as praise, Paul Thomas Anderson there's some boogie nights to this too, right? Like we, we're moving, we're moving, and then there's like that one last thing scene where he goes to, uh, what's his name, Alfred Molina's house. And then we have uh, the Beach Boys playing and we kind of get the wrap-up story, right? There's that sort of like broad 
big storytelling thing going on. Scarl disagrees completely, but if I'm playing cinematic equivalents, that's where I'm going. Well, yeah, I thought I, I thought we already kind of agreed, even though I wildly disagree with some of that on the Paul Thomas Anderson Magnolia. Magnolia, that's right. I couldn't remember if we had referenced that. Yeah, but there is a Hidden Life by Terrence Malick, which does some of the things Elliot does like Malik very you know famous or infamous for a sort of narrative wandering in a lot of his movies sometimes to the you know deep ire of critics and sometimes <laughs> to the like deep love of the fans at the same time even but the a hidden life I think is having seen a lot of Malik movies and not loved all of them I do think A Hidden Life, which takes its title from the final lines of Middlemarch, and explicitly so, as it shouts out to it in the beginning of the movie, does an excellent job of portraying the same theme here, and in a lot of the same ways of each character gets a sort of allegorical but historical sort of valence when they come on the screen as, you know, an interrogator in a bad regime, but also just a man led astray by the way of his time and unable to see outside of his time and this sort of rural agrarian somewhat pedestrian man who just makes one simple refusal and then it follows him throughout his whole life through you know all of the consequences of that and what that means but it hits the same note really hard and i think really beautifully in the film that to live a hidden life for in the case of the film, even like a, a hidden principle to that life that remains, you know, opaque or impossible to be understood by a lot of other people or the society. There's still a real deep beauty in that steadfastness of that kind of life or that kind of choice. So to me, that's like a clear parallel too. I think that's an interesting upping of the stakes somewhat, Carl. It's easy to say, okay, we've got a hidden life here in 19th century Britain where she's sort of living as a relatively carefree aristocrat, but she's still doing something with her life. And there's not like a ton of conflict as, as Carl pointed out, or sorry, as Friedrich pointed out earlier, this is the, the age of reform in Britain. It's not the age of revolution. Right. Mm -hmm. But then Malik's taking that and transposing it, you know, into the middle of the second world war where there's, maybe a demand like almost a part of the demand is in part of the reason that a hidden life doesn't fit in with the narratives of a lot of world war ii movies is that it's not about somebody who like tried to assassinate hitler or something like that like it has there have been plenty of movies about those things right and in, instead it's about somebody who simply refused to go along right and did it quietly and didn't have any impact any noticeable impact on the waging of the war but was living in accordance with his conscience and then suffered for it and and did so very quietly so there's that interesting malik's drawing our attention to the value of that even in a more dire situation yeah it's it's almost the doubled down or distilled version of middle march in the sense that if you take the final line which becomes the title and you gave that to dorothea in the beginning of middle march would she still have lived her life the same way? <laughs> would she have still had that certain kind of attraction to a person like Casaban, knowing that she would never finish his book and he would never finish his book and there would be nothing that came of that sort of intellectual meaning of minds? That's the kind of moment Malik presses on the main character in Hidden Life where they say over and over again, 
why are you doing this? Why are you standing up for this principle of rightness and goodness when you know and I know it will have absolutely no effect Mm -hmm. and it will in fact only have ill effect on you personally. The only thing that you can change is your own life and you're changing it for the worse in all Mm -hmm. kinds of ways. So your grand statement means nothing. Why Mm -hmm. would you still do it? And then he still does. That also puts me in the mind of a book that I know Friedrich and I both like a lot, which is Aldous Huxley's war novel, Time Must Have a Stop, which is a really delightful book in some ways. And there's a lot going on in it, but but by the end of it, we're in the middle of, of World War II, and the main character, Sebastian, has sort of been taught over the course of the book how to turn away from selfishness and think about living an ethical life. And there's this sort of question, his father, who's like a communist revolutionary, scorns him because he thinks you're not doing anything worthwhile and his his sort of idol is this man who is an italian man who tried to live ethically and then was arrested by mussolini and thrown in jail Mm -hmm. for a long time and the the emphasis that huxley has in the book is that there's something salutary about suffering alongside of other people even if we are not able to change their fates and it seems that by the end of middlemarch Dorothy is not actively suffering, maybe, but she sort of ha- recognizes the wisdom in that, in that there's something salutary in living alongside of other people, even if we are not radically changing the fate of the world around us. So that, that's that's something else that that brought to mind as well. That's kind of like another triangulation point for the book. As Mr. Fairbrother says to Dorothea, there is no proof in favor of the man outside his own consciousness and assertion. Brings us back to Pascal again, right? And the candor has come up as a key word in this discussion. It's about being able to live with yourself, right? It's a book about the social web and the relations between people and all the ways that you're formed by that and the ways you can affect it. But like ultimately you're living with yourself and can you do that? And how do you do that? And do your actions spell out a self that you can identify? I think there's a point where Rosamond is after an argument left on her own and and described as like a bewildering benighted consciousness or something like that. And there's a sense throughout the book that we turn to moments where people are bewildered and reduced in some form, reduced to a, a feeling or a vague consciousness that they can, they can hardly grab onto. It feels like there's a lot of people being unmoored and then trying to find a sense of self. And I think Soren's right that it's uh, an ability to cling to other people is important if you're doing so out of like sympathy, empathy, solidarity, or something like that, that, Mm-hmm. You have to be able to live with yourself, but you can cling to other people. I was going to say one more thing. Um, Edmund Wilson has an interesting take where he compares Henry James to Shakespeare as novelists of the conditions of life. And he says, you know, like Racine and Moliere, they have certain points of view. Dickens and Hardy write a certain kind of page turning melodrama. Balzac is a secretary of society he calls them and then someone like conrad is like a great pessimist Uh, someone like tolstoy is a great prophet but people like shakespeare and henry james and i would include here george Eliot, at least in this book don't try to offer us any of those uh, what you might think of as outs or points of view but simply the conditions of life and accurate and as real as possible presentations of the conflicts of moral character. And to me, I think that sense of 
what realism does in this book is is really robust. Well, that's that seems like a good place to to wrap up Middlemarch. Thank you all for joining us on this journey. It's been a good one. We've really enjoyed talking about it over the past four episodes. We are moving on now into the second part of our season, which is extrapolating out of Middlemarch in different ways. Part two of this season, we've dubbed The Key to All Mythologies. Our next three books are related somehow to this idea of sort of an all-encompassingness in one form or another. Up first is Carl's first pick of the season, which is the wonderful, delightful Candide by Voltaire, speaking of candidness there, and gardening, as we'll see. And we'll talk about it next time. It's very short if you want to read along in contrast to Middlemarch, although I think it actually has more plot than Middlemarch um, in like 80 pages than the Middlemarch does in 800. It's a wonderful early novel. It's a picaresque. Um, It's very, very funny. And it's also very explicitly engaging with the philosophical ideas of the day, how successfully we can talk about next time. Um, But we hope you'll read along and join us for that next time. Uh, I think it's going to be a very fun discussion. Until then, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Cause I spit spinach I'm Popeye the Sailor Man